This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Many of the drugs we use to treat a wide range of diseases, from cancer to diabetes, are derived directly or indirectly from trees and other plants. Bark extracts from a tall tropical rainforest tree could be used in the development of psychiatric and neurological drugs. But until recently, the difficulty of obtaining the bark of this tree in bulk and the structural complexity of the compounds have impeded any in-depth analysis or application to medicine. A team of chemists at Scripps Research recently published a paper in the journal Science that describes their efforts to streamline the process of extraction and study of these compounds. That process, which originally took 31 different steps, has now been reduced to a remarkably efficient seven-step process. This may lead to future exploration of the ways that natural products can be used to improve human health. Our guest today is Dr. Ryan Shenvey at Scripps Research. Ryan, welcome. Thank you for inviting me onto the program. You bet. Um, Ryan, your recent article in the journal Science about the ways that you and your team have been able to better isolate and study these neuroactive drugs is just fascinating to me. But before we start on the science of your study, I'd like to envision where you carry out your research. Um, Could you start us off by just telling us about your current research setting, where you are now? I am am currently uh, sitting about 100 feet up from the Torrey Pines Golf Course, which is itself about 100 feet up from the coast of the Pacific Ocean. That sounds lovely. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's something that unfortunately I occasionally take for granted. I can see the paragliders from the, <laughs> from the glider port floating above oh my gosh. 200 yards. The Scripps Research Institute, which was rebranded about five years ago as Scripps Research, has been an offshoot uh, of the Scripps Metabolic Clinic, which grew out of the La Jolla Cove over a century ago, actually. And we have become now a one of, one of the world's foremost research institutes. And uh, Nature recently ranked us, uh, I think, number one in its innovation index. This was, this was maybe two years ago or so. So we have a, we have a really fantastic... A series of departments ranging from neuroscience to chemical biology, and I'm in the Department of Chemistry. All of my colleagues are much more eminent scientists than I am. I I, um, look up to and admire each one of my colleagues, even the ones that are much younger than me. I just think we have an extraordinary department here, uh, and I'm really lucky to be a part of it. Fantastic. It sounds like an incredibly stimulating place to, to carry out research. That's fantastic. Ryan, could you describe in a, in a general way what your approach was to, to answering the questions you were curious about? Maybe I could re-ask this by saying, how do you go from the bark of that tree to where you are now? So let me first talk about the planning phase. I like to use the analogy of a chess game. I, this doesn't originate from me by any uh, stretch of the imagination. But what you can imagine is that each atom that you'll find in the complex constellation that makes up your molecule of interest. You can imagine each atom is like a chess piece, but you kind of, you've kind of, you've gotten to the end of the chess game almost. Okay. So that is, you don't, you don't have the pieces lined up in an orderly way, but they've been moved throughout the board and you're trying to find out what is the quickest way, let's say, to get to checkmate. And there are a number of possible solutions. Now, of course, some solutions can be 
rather lengthy. And it could take you 20 steps back and forth with your opponent to actually get to checkmate. But you may recognize a particularly simplifying move that, let's say, achieves checkmate in three steps. This is very much like how the logic of synthetic planning occurs. You have this very complex constellation of atoms, and you try to then break the bonds between the atoms using known chemical reactions, in this case in reverse actually, so I'll, I'll talk about that. You break them in reverse until you simplify them back to these simple chemicals that you can buy. Now, you, you asked about how drugs are discovered, and I mentioned this idea of taking simple chemicals and mixing them together into also simple chemicals. Usually, it's much more difficult to take those simple components and then build them into highly complex structures. But if you plan just right, you know, like identifying a key move that will achieve uh, checkmate, you can actually achieve that building process very efficiently. And so that's conceptually what we did in this paper. So I, I gathered from reading your paper that the synthesis of natural compounds really is not an easy thing, and it does take many steps in the laboratory, and that a great accomplishment of the work that you reported in this journal article is that you were able to reduce the number of synthesis steps from as many as 31, which was the previous record, I guess, to as few as seven, which I think is astounding. And I read in an early interview of yours a really another really fabulous analogy that you used about traveling to distant stars and how locating a star is like your earlier work. Um, and then you, once you get to that star, you can find planets and other celestial objects nearby. Now, how can you, could you explain that analogy and, and that sort of area of your approach? Yeah, absolutely. So occasionally chemists and in particular specialists called informaticians, that is uh, chemists who look at chemistry using informatics research, will describe something called chemical space. And that's used one of two ways. It can describe all of the possible molecules that could exist in the universe. And it turns out that actually exceeds the size of the universe. So that's not a very helpful way of describing <laughs> no, <you're right. laughs> Okay. Another way of thinking about chemical space is taking all of the attributes of a given small molecule that can be number of atoms in the molecule. It can be the formula weight, that is how much it weighs. It can be its polarity. It can even be its solubility. And you simply plot it in, it can be a two-dimensional space, it can be a three-dimensional space, it can be a multi-dimensional space. You plot those parameters to describe either a single molecule or a collection of molecules. So when you then parameterize different molecules or different sets or libraries of these compounds, it allows you to identify differences between them. And in general, because natural products on average tend to be very complex, they occupy this area of chemical space that is far away from these simple chemicals that you can buy. And therefore, if you think about the synthesis process in terms of navigation through a chemical space, essentially what you're doing is you're traveling from this one group of parameters of simple chemicals to another group of parameters that's distant from you. One way to think about it uh, uses the analogy of cooking, because actually not only is chemistry a lot like cooking, but there's actually a fair amount of chemistry that goes into cooking itself. And so if you imagine your you know, feedstock starting materials in cooking as flour and egg and milk and sugar, 
these are relatively simple homogeneous substances, but you can whip them up into something complex. And if you go to, I don't know, TikTok or YouTube, and you see some of these masterful, artful uh, chefs, you know, they can take these very simple building blocks and they can turn them into something magnificent. All right. But you really want to do that, especially if you're worried about economies of scale, you want to do that as quickly and as affordably as possible. And that is where a lot of this strategic planning comes in. You know, when I envision synthetic chemists, I just imagine people in a lab pouring together different compounds, but, <clears throat> but I hadn't really envisioned this, this, this pre-planning, this idea of, of sort of designing and fashioning the protocol or the approach that you might need to arrive at understanding these more complex compounds. So thanks for that explanation. Oh, my pleasure. Um, I was wondering whether, with this study in particular, were there any surprises that you and your team discovered or that emerged from this study, something that you hadn't expected? Yeah, there were two main surprises, one of which was a total frustration and the other which was a total joy. The total frustration is that one of the key intermediates that we targeted, it was sort of like the one handhold we had to climb up this difficult mountain of complexity turned out to be a very unstable handhold. So we got to that point and we were poised to reach the end and it gave way. It turned out it was a very unstable compound under the conditions that we were subjecting it to, to carry through the synthesis. So it took us a lot of work. And in particular, one of my postdoctoral fellows, Takuya Uguma, discovered some very unusual conditions for forging a key bond that prevented the molecule from just falling apart. And then the total joy came at the end. Um, this is kind of a, a long and circuitous project. Uh, the, it was interrupted by the pandemic. So we had personnel that ended up leaving before the project was complete and new personnel coming on to see it to completion, which often doesn't happen, but the pandemic right. gracious. A, a lot of a lot of plans. And right before one of the senior students who is one of the co-first authors on this paper was poised to graduate, she discovered that when we subjected one of the intermediates that was a lot like a natural product to pretty severe conditions. Okay. We didn't really know if this intermediate would survive. It almost magically transformed into exactly what we wanted at the end. You know, it, we were, we were, we were beneficiaries of um, some great luck, some great serendipity, which turned out to favor exactly the right structure of the natural product produced by this tree. This question may be a little out of your roadhouse since you're a synthetic chemist and not a not a medical person, but I read in your paper that extracts of the bark of this tree um, has been traditionally used for their hallucinogenic properties. And I know that there's a growing awareness of the efficacy of hallucinogenic drugs in mental and physical health. You know, for example, Michael Pollan has placed this in into the popular mind. And I was wondering whether any of your work has led you to a greater understanding of the potential health benefits of psychoactive drugs, such as are found in the bark of the trees that you've been studying? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. And it is the main question that our lab is now working towards answering. It turns out that these small molecules are called, al they're called alkaloids. Uh, that simply describes the reactivity. They form quantitatively uh, salts with mineral acids. It's a very old and a little bit anachronistic term. 
there's a mixture of 40 of these alkaloids found in the bark of a tree called Galbulomyma belgraviana. And as you mentioned, it's a component, it, the, the bark itself is used in the traditional medicine and ritual of people of Papua New Guinea. And it turns out it's not only used in ritual, so it's used to treat uh, stomach ache and also fever, but it's also used in this ritualistic role to prepare warriors for battle. Uh, it tends to have an excitatory effect, but also can cause visions. And I very deliberately said it can cause visions because it doesn't always. And this is one of the key complications of studying the bark, which we hope synthesis will overcome. It turns out that if you sample the bark from one tree in one grove, and then the bark from another tree, maybe in the same grove, it will not have the same collection of alkaloids. What? It does not appear to depend on season. That's crazy. That's amazing. And it's and incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I guess so from your standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, wow. having reliable access to these compounds can be very challenging. And in fact, uh, this was a topic of interest to sharing plow about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, actually. And they opted to synthesize these compounds, not to isolate them from the bark, even though the compound that they were interested in is the most abundant by about a thousandfold compared to the other alkaloids. It's just very difficult to get your hands on. Uh, many of these bark samples that led to the original identification of the alkaloids were literally a ton. I think, I think well, I shouldn't say literally. 1,600 pounds worth of bark was used. To wow. These. So it's a, it's a small truckload, let's say. Wow, that is amazing. Um, on kind of a, a sideways topic, the very, I guess, complex, I would say, political and economic implications of medically active drugs that are derived from rainforest plants and what that means for its harvesting or its, its, its planting in, a, in sort of a commercial level. Is, is synthetic chemistry kind of an answer to that issue? That is that you don't have to, we, won't, we don't have to go out to Papua New Guinea or Malaysia or Queensland to harvest these trees from the wild, but rather synthetic chemists like yourself can get the idea, so to speak, of how these compounds are formed and then can produce them in the lab. Is that a way of sort of avoiding the, the very complex and sticky issues of ownership and who makes money off these things anyway? Yeah, that's a fantastic point. It's an issue that I think we should not avoid. So my concern actually in this area is that even though Western scientists have moved in and tried to understand and benefit from the traditional medicine of um, another people group, which I think could have great benefits for humanity in general, what I don't want to see is that recognition that the discovery was actually made by the people of Papua New Guinea. I don't want to see that not recognized. And I think it's actually really important that the intellectual roots of this area remain with Papua New Guinea. So I, I don't know what role we can play in that, but it's something that I would advocate, advocate for if, uh, you know, should these compounds uh, lead to a significant and commercial breakthrough. Now, the other side of that is um, exactly right in terms of uh, conservation. So because these alkaloids are isolated from stripping the bark of a tree, which ends up killing the tree, that significantly limits how you might procure this in a commercial way. And this is directly related to a very famous problem in my field, 
centering around a molecule called Taxol. So this is uh, currently the standard of care for certain types of non-small cell lung cancer and ovarian cancer. But originally it was obtained from stripping the bark from the Pacific yew tree. And it took synthetic chemistry uh, stepping in and coming up with a solution where they could transform a related molecule from a related bush where the, uh, the, the starting material is produced in its leaves. They could isolate it from the leaves. Obviously the leaves could be regrown the compound could be transformed then into taxol, both, you know, leading to a lot of lives being saved, but also providing a renewable resource, which is not originally possible from the Pacific Pacific. I was thinking of that exact that exact example, Ryan, of, uh, you know, the Pacific yew tree is this little skinny understory subcanopy tree that is not very dense. And I remember when Taxol came into play and we began understanding the, the power of Taxol, uh, Weyerhaeuser, for example, started planting plantations of the Pacific U. But then in fairly rapid order, synthetic chemists were able to reproduce the, the nature of this compound. And, and so so ewes are no longer harvested for their bark or for other, other parts of them to, to create this compound. Yeah, you probably know this story a lot better than I do as um, you know, as a rainforest botanist. No, I, I, I've delved into this because, you know, one of the arguments for conservation, of course, as I mentioned, is is the idea that these plants have evolved chemicals that can be used by humans, but that we have to be really careful about how we go about extracting them from wild places. So so that's why in some ways I feel like synthetic cannabis chemists are my heroes because they you know, they, they have a major role in alleviating the collection of, of these plant materials from the wild. So I'm, I'm grateful for the expertise that you and your team have. Well, thank you. Maybe you can provide a letter of support for an, for an NIH <laughs> grant. I really appreciate that. You could use, use HERO somewhere in the letter. That there we go. Really that, that's beneficial. it. I think that, that would be great. I was also wondering, as I finished reading your paper and the interviews that were associated with it, because it's your paper has attracted a, a huge amount of attention. I'm wondering where you see yourself or your team or maybe other synthetic chemists, where this might lead them. What what would be the next steps in, in research that that follows or emerges from your study? So the first area we'd like to get involved in, and, and really this is an area that's huge, and I think many individual labs can be involved in this as well, we'd really like to make this correlation between the effects that have been observed in animals and in humans, and uh, make a correlation between those effects and the individual receptors that might be involved in that activity. Again, this is complicated by the fact that, number one, the alkaloid content in the bark is highly variable, which means that if you have human ingestion of different samples at different times, then you're going to have very different effects observed. And that's hard then to make a correlation between that behavior and the alkaloids and the receptors. We'd also like to make the correlation between the animal effects, because these were done with purified, known, uh, mostly known alkaloid samples. And we'd like to correlate that behavior to the receptor. So that's the first area. We started to make some headway. We know why uh, one of the compounds appears to have an antipreening effect in mice. And we know why one another compound is potently antispasmodic. Uh, the first one is, was published in Nature about a month ago. The second one is not, has not been published yet. So that's all I can say about it, unfortunately. 
Okay. But an, another area we'd like to see for the field is to kind of move beyond just the lead that's provided by nature. So, you know, if you think about it, the Pacific yew tree, Galbulomima belgraviana, did not evolve to make therapeutics for human beings. Right? There's no selection pressure that would lead them to do that. So even though these are great starting points for medicines, usually what happens is that the small molecule that's isolated undergoes some optimization process so that it's orally bioavailable. That means you can take it orally and it, it dissolves, gets through your mucosa, potentially penetrates the brain if, it, if that's necessary. And then the structure of the natural product has been changed by synthetic chemists. So our thinking is, why not cut out the middleman and why not take this initial structure that has been, let's say, published in the literature, and rather than just trying to recreate it in the lab, why don't you actually target something that has already begun the optimization process, that it change the structure and already make it one step closer to what you might want from a drug? Um, the analogy I like to use, again, is the chessboard. So imagine that you have, uh, you're halfway through a game, you're trying to find the quickest route to checkmate. Okay, a very quick way to do that, by the way, is to tell your opponent, hey, look behind you, and then snatch a <laughs> Right? And in chess, of course, that's cheating, because it's a game. Right. But in science, really, there are no rules. There are, of course, the laws of physics, but... If you have a goal in mind, you're not strictly bound to a set of rules, okay? And in synthetic chemistry, we can envision changes to a small molecule that might actually make its synthesis a lot simpler. And that's like taking a piece away, or potentially, it's like adding a piece to the board. Let's say adding a pawn in order to block a bishop, let's say, from attacking and interposing in your checkmate. So we like to call this dynamic retrosynthetic analysis because you're treating the target, your natural product, actually is changeable, mutable, okay, dynamic. And therefore, what you can do is you can keep it in the same location in chemical space, to use the chemical space analogy, right? So potentially, it might be a lot easier to get to Mars than to get to Venus, but you're still within the same star system, and you can still potentially navigate the local space just as easily. Well, you have made synthetic chemistry sound like an arena of great creativity as well as scholarship, and I, I think that's fascinating. Um, I just want to ask one last question. You know, you are, I see as an expert, you are an expert in many fields, and you have an incredibly active lab with lots of different projects going on. And I was wondering whether you'll be following up yourself with the studies of the biological properties of these particular complex compounds, or will you be using this broad synthesis strategy to study other compounds and other systems? That is, what is next for you as a synthetic chemist at Scripps? Well, that depends actually a lot on NIH funding. And so I can say that what I would like to do if we are funded is both of what you mentioned. So we are a synthetic chemistry lab. We have occasionally dabbled in biology, but it's not our core expertise. And what, we're really like, what we'd really like to do is, like you said, continue exploring the space, making both changes to the bioactive leads that we've identified, but also accessing more examples of galbulomima alkaloids that have activity in animals that are orally bioavailable, that are brain penetrant. 
and then work in collaboration with other labs. I have some great colleagues. Laura Bond is one of the world experts in opioid receptors. We're working with her. Brian Roth lab at UNC has been incredibly helpful in helping us identify targets of these alkaloids. We've been contacted by some great scientists at uh, Rockefeller University, including Eduardo Buttleman and Brian Reed. We have this great community of scientists, and I think it would be such a shame if all of these alkaloids, all of these unique structures just stayed on a shelf in our lab. So we're trying very hard to get these compounds out into the community. And even if we're not involved, we would like to see what science comes of them. That sounds fantastic. That's, to me, the best of science is that desire to share, that desire to move forward, whether it's you and your lab or somebody else in somebody else's lab. That's really wonderful to hear. It's such a generous spirit, I think, uh, to accomplish science. So thanks for that. And thank you so much, Ryan, for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I, I really enjoyed learning from you about your perspectives of synthetic chemistry as both a creative and a useful field. And so we at public uh, at Utah Public Radio wish you the best for your work in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nalini. This is a lot of fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.